The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each, of, each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like silver or gold or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you about this again. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believe, among whom were Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word today. We're thankful for the truth that you are the God who made the world and everything in it. God, and that you would humble yourself to become part of your creation. God, to be the one who would judge the world and yet serve the lowest of the low. God, we are people who need to repent of our sins. And God, I pray that we would all know today that we can come to you in confidence in the forgiveness of Christ. God, would we all lay aside all the idols, all of the pride that we strive for and that we seek to uh, have be the Lord of our life, and would we trust completely in the finished work of Jesus today. We pray for John as he brings the word to us. We love you. Jesus, let me pray. Amen. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Um, Man, first of all, I just want to say thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, I I know what it's like to go take a look at, at churches, so if this is one of your first times here at Grace City, and this, you're here, I know what it's like to show up to a church and I'll have a guest speaker and be like, dang it. You know, I was hoping to hear from the main guy, you know. Um, but I do want to say, as someone who knows the main guy, and, uh, you know, as the church, churches are, are composed of people. And this church is composed of some incredible, incredible people. And so I uh, got to spend some time with, with Randall and Ryan and then a guy that was a part of this church for a while named Sal. He's since moved to Arizona. We were part of this thing for a whole year during COVID, this little uh, like pastor's training thing. 
and got to know those guys, got to know their personalities, got to know their hearts. They are great. I uh, get to work with uh, Lauren Kish is over there. Leela's over here. Used to work with Brooke uh, back in the day, working with college students. Uh, just a huge honor to be here this morning at Grace City. Uh, my name is John Roper. It's already been, it's already been mentioned that I uh, work with Crew. With, uh, which is a ministry to college campuses here in San Diego. I'm also the college and young adult pastor at New Vision Church, and that is where Randall is uh, today. So it, we did a little swip swap, you know, um, and so excited to be here. And uh, it's actually kind of funny. I, I was like, uh, this is my first time being on a high school stage, like an auditorium stage since my senior year in high school. It was a little bit traumatic. It was because I was performing in a show choir performance in front of the whole student body. You guys know what show choir is? I got some, yes, yeah. Well, if you don't know what show choir is, maybe you know what the, the TV show Glee is, right? And so like, whatever your, um, whatever, however you, uh, you just decide like a cool factor, however you quantify cool factor, and however you judge Glee as whatever cool factor quantifiable metric you give glee our show choir was minus infinity right it just was terrible and so that was i was up here i'm like wow i hope this is redemptive you know being up here on the high school stage but uh anyway glad to be here with you guys today uh, we are going to continue in the in a, the book of acts so grace city we've been in uh, a study for a while looking at the book of acts and acts it, we're actually doing this in in our group at church and um Acts is one of my favorite books, the book of Acts. I, I do have one slight beef though. Like if you look at your Bibles and at the very first page, it usually says as the title, it says the Acts of the Apostles. Now the apostles are important, certainly. They're, they're all over the Acts, right? They do all these incredible things. They're the, the, the early church, the new church. The church is expanding all over the Roman empire. It's amazing. But sometimes we forget that these, these apostles, like literally four or five years prior, were just like normal people, right? Normal flawed people, like the, the disciples who actually did a lot of messed up and, and weird and ignorant things when they were still with Jesus. But this is only like three or four years later than that, right? So these apostles are still very much normal and very much flawed people, right? So. To me, the whole purpose of the book or the main character of the book of, the, of Acts is not necessarily the apostles, but it's the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit that is empowering these normal flawed people, the apostles, to do incredible things. A couple weeks ago, you guys talked about this, uh, Paul and some of the disciples, the apostles getting accused of turning the world upside down. These incredible things that they were turning the, the whole uh, fabric of society and the religious structure of the Roman Empire upside down. That is the work of the, of the Holy Spirit. And what's cool is that it's been 2,000 years since then, and a lot has changed, like a lot <laughs> in the last 2,000 years. But what's cool is that the, the purpose and the theme of the book of Acts is still the same today, that I am a flawed and normal person you are flawed and normal person. We, as the church, are normal flawed people. And yet what's amazing is that the power of the Holy Spirit is still moving and working in each one of us to see transformation. 
And that's what's so cool about the book of Acts and so fun about what we get to talk about even this morning. And so uh, we, I'm going to pick up right where Randall left off last week in verse 22. And this is Paul in Athens. And uh, the sermon title this morning is going to be Addressing Idols. And this is going to be one of the most famous sermons that Paul gave. So he gave a lot of sermons uh, in the book of Acts, but this is one of the most famous, and it is the model, many theologians believe it is the model for how we are to engage in different cultures, engage in the secular world in order to, to tell people about the good news of the gospel. And so we're going to be looking at this, and we're going to focus on three specific things as we take a look at how Paul... in interacted with uh, the secular culture. The first is that Paul engages the secular world. The second is that Paul preaches a beautiful gospel. And finally, how Paul leaves the results to God. All right. So let me go ahead and pray quick and then we'll, we'll get rolling. God, we are humbled by your presence and, and we're just even humbled by the reminder that, um, man, we're just normal and flawed and ordinary people. Um, and we desperately need you to work and move. And we thank you that you are here now. So Lord, we just pray that you would uh, speak a word to us, encourage our hearts, uh, embolden us to be your ministers of the gospel to our communities. So we just pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right. In the third century, uh, there was this guy in Egypt named Anthony. And he's actually since been made a saint. So his name is called Saint Anthony. And he's known as the founder of the monastic movement. He sold his possessions and devoted himself to a life of asceticism, which the, a life of asceticism is, is basically a life of self-denial in order to grow closer to God. And since then, there have been several iterations of the monastic life ranging from guys like this St. Anthony, who they, they moved out to the desert and they lived in caves, right? There was even one of his friends in, in church tradition that actually decided to, in order to show his devotion to God, he would live on a pole. So he like literally sat on a pole. I mean, it was a big pole, probably not a small pole, like a large one to sit on, right? But had his friends and his, to bring him food and water. And he wanted to show, this was for like weeks, right? He wanted to show his devotion to God for doing that. But it's, it's evolved over time from that into, we see these beautiful monasteries that are built, um, and that were built in kind of the middle ages and the dark ages. And actually, what's funny is uh, one of my cousins, or I guess my dad's cousin, so it's first cousin once removed, uh, is an Antiochian Orthodox monk. And he was actually living in one of these, uh, these on Mount Athos in Greece, and one of these ancient monasteries built. And in many ways, the monastic movement has produced many great things, right? So in the, during the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, if you know anything about history, the, the monasteries were actually a place of one of the only sources of education and where they were able to actually preserve many of the theological and historical writings of the early church. It's also produced uh, great things on spiritual formation or life with God, right? So uh, this idea and the disciplines of leaving our busy life in the world, 
retreating and spending time with God. So some of the disciplines that come to mind are things like fasting, right? Where we deny ourselves of food or something, you know, social media, whatever it is, in order to uh, show our devotion to God and ask him to change us. Another thing is the discipline of silence and solitude, being able to escape from the world in silence and being alone, which I know from, I, I tried that one time for like three days. It took me like 24 hours to detox from my phone, right? Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I know. Um, and another thing is just quiet times, right? Quiet times, which is, is as simple as daily retreating from the world and spending time with God, reading his word and praying, right? So these are some of the great things that the monastic movement has provided for us. However, one of the downsides of this movement, which we're kind of be focusing on today, is that it really does highlight the tendency of the church to disengage and separate itself from the secular world. And we see it today uh, in the church. It, It might not look like us moving into the desert to live a life of asceticism, but it can look like only exclusively living in our Christian bubbles removed from the world around us. Churches that have buildings and neighborhoods, but not knowing any of the neighbors. And in some ways it does make sense because when we think about what is the purpose or what is the role of the church, one of its roles is to be a place of respite, a place of rest, where believers and people that believe in Jesus can gather together once or a few times a week in order to experience rest apart from the world, that we can come together in community to worship God, where we can be in fellowship with other people that believe and have similar values that we do. And that in some ways have our spiritual tanks filled up in the week. However, the Bible clearly states that God has given us a a message and a purpose to his followers or the church, us, that is equally important. And that role is to be engaged in the world and to be his witnesses and to be his ambassadors in the world. 2 Corinthians 5 is uh, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And in there, Paul is talking about this idea that as believers, people that identify as Christians, we have been reconciled to God. That we were far apart from God because of our sin, but because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we have now been reconciled. We are now brought back into communion with God. And then he says that it doesn't just stop there, but as soon as we are reconciled, what he says is that then we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. So the moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the moment that we identify as a Christian, we immediately become full-time ministers of the gospel, which is scary (laughs) and crazy sometimes to think about. But he has commissioned us, we have been reconciled, and he's commissioned us to then take the ministry of reconciliation, take the good news to the world. And he even says something like, you are his ambassadors of Christ. You are the ambassadors of Christ, the representatives of Christ. Meaning that you and I are living, breathing, walking representatives of Jesus Christ to every single sphere that we are in, in our lives. 
A theologian, Stanley Grins, said, the church, which is called into being by God, is called to be a mirror to the world of God's own nature. And what he's saying there is that we as the church collectively, but also we as individual believers or or followers of Jesus, are to actually, through our lives and our words, reflect God's characteristics and goodness to the world around us. That when people experience us, they experience God. And so if we withdraw from the world, if we detach from the world, we are gonna miss out on one of our most important purposes as the church and as Christians. And so in Acts 17, we see that Paul does not withdraw. <laughs> in fact, I think, uh, I think he was supposed to, honestly, um, because I, you know, last week or the week before, uh, Randall's been talking about it, but things were getting kind of crazy wherever Paul was going, right? Uh, getting thrown in prison, uh, getting threatened to have rocks thrown at him, being stoned. Uh, you know, in Thessalonica, there was riots that were raised up. They were accusing of turning the, the, the world upside down. They went to Berea, same thing. Uh, all those people found him again, incited all these riots. And so it's just absolute chaos. So the, the Christians there were like, okay, Paul, we need to send you away so things die down a bit. Go to Athens. You're gonna be like one in, of like millions. You're gonna just hide out in Athens, which is like a hundred miles away from Berea. And we just want you to lay low. But if you know anything about Paul, he will never do that, <laughs> right? Lay low uh, or chill out is not in his vocabulary. And so he instead engages the world. And what led him to leave safety, to, instead of withdrawing, what led him to engage in the world in Athens is what we saw this last week. He saw the idolatry of the city. His soul was provoked. It was deeply moved. And Randall talked about this idea that idols are seeking hope, life, fulfillment, and purpose in created things. Things that were never meant to provide any of that. And the consequence is devastating. And we see it today. I mean, yeah, every single statistic that you can think of with anxiety, depression, suicide, everything is on epic proportions in relation to other times in human history. And so as we engage in the world, as we even look inward to us, we will quickly see societal idols. Internally, us, we will quickly see things in us that we're looking to, created things for love and joy and meaning and purpose, things that were never created to to offer those things. And as a result, it should compel us to do something about it. And so rather than disengage, Paul engages the secular world around him. So we can read uh, in chapter 17, verse 22. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens. And quick, the Areopagus Uh, If Athens was the cultural, philosophical, intellectual capital of the Roman Empire, right? This is like where all the the brainiacs and all the people, it's like the, uh, yeah, all the brainiacs of the world congregated was in Athens. If, If that was true, 
then the Areopagus was the cultural, philosophical, intellectual capital of Athens, right? So this is the spot where people would come together and, and, and talk about religious ideologies or intellectual thoughts or debate philosophies. And the Areopagus was also a council. It was a group of people that represented the diverse thoughts of the time that were kind of the religious, philosophical, intellectual gatekeepers. That they listened and determined whether something was true or worthy of listening to. Right, so already Paul is standing in the midst of the Areopagus. He was in the marketplace. We studied that last week. Now he's in the midst of this Areopagus, which is like the pillar of religion, philosophy, and intellect in the world. Now, Paul is smart, right? But he's also kind of, he was like a big fish in the small pond of Jerusalem. Like in relation to Athens and Rome, Paul is a nobody, right? He's a smart guy. So you, you have this Paul who is very clearly emboldened and empowered by the Holy Spirit to get up there in front of all these people and they're basically asking him, share, share what you, you believe, which is a pretty amazing and cool uh, opportunity that he has. And he says this as we continue in verse 22. He says, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And a couple of things that we can just pick from this of what Paul did, right? So Paul is not from Athens, right? This possibly was the first time Paul had ever been to Athens. And so, but what we can see is the fruit of how Paul immersed himself and engaged in the culture. He took time engaging with people, talking with people in the city and observing what was going on, right? It did not take long but for him to identify the worldview or the, 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 the lens through which people uh, saw value and believed in things. And so for us, you know, when, when I was in college, I went to UC Davis, uh, I studied biology, but um, I quickly realized that medicine was not my thing because I was too social, you know what I'm saying? I had too much fun with friends, right? Um, but the Christian ministry I was a part of it at UC Davis, uh, we, were, we, we had this little time where we just started focusing a lot on praying for our spheres of influence. Uh, so a lot of us have these different spheres of influence, right? So when I, the first thing I had to do as a student, when, when I was thinking about reaching or being an ambassador for Christ, was to even identify what is my sphere, what are my spheres of influence? So uh, one of the first sphere I had was I worked at a restaurant, right? So that is a sphere. Cafe Italia was my sphere at the time, uh, my work sphere. My classes, right? So I was in labs. I hung out with different people from classes. My classes and labs in different places were a sphere. My roommates, I lived with roommates that did not believe in God. And so theoretically, my, where I lived was a sphere, and then I, I was crazy and ambitious as a college student, so I wanted to get more involved in the, you know, the religious communities at UC Davis, and so I joined the Baha'i Club, right? Uh, the Baha'i faith is a faith that they basically believe in, in a whole, in like all the religions. All the religions kind of lead to the same place. And so I joined that club and started attending their weekly meetings. Uh, and what I started doing, the second thing, after I identified my spheres of influence, the second thing that I, I had to do was start to think about 
people in my spheres of influence to start praying for them. So I, they didn't know I was praying for them. I just had a list of people in every single sphere of, my inf- of influences to pray for. And finally, the third thing was, you know, it's not rocket science really. It's just, I took time, intentional time to get to know each person that I was praying for in my sphere of influence. And uh, someone uh, told me one time that one of the best ministries is the ministry of presence. You know, not presence as in like Christmas presence, but presence as in us being there with people with no agenda. And it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Uh, some, if we have more time, I could tell more stories, but it's crazy what identifying spheres of people and my spheres of influence, praying for people and then spending time with people. It is crazy the kind of stories that I've had of just conversations, radical cool things that happen, opportunities that came up to be able to present the, the good news of Jesus to lots of people. It was really fun. So today, my primary work is in, are in Christian spaces. And so when I think about, I still have to do this. I still make a discipline of doing this where I identify where are my spheres of influence. And so one of my main ones are my neighbors and their families. Uh, you know, my wife and I, we, we routinely pray for our neighbors and, and their families. And just this last week, I was walking home with one of the dads and, and just walking no agenda after dropping our, our kids off at school. And uh, we were just, uh, he was sharing with me uh, some difficult stuff that was going on in his marriage. And just being there with people is, is the ministry of presence. Uh, the colleges I, I, I work with, the neighborhood of our church, our spheres, and you know, families and people at my son's school. And so really the main takeaway of the challenge I wanna leave with you guys today is for you to think about and identify what spheres of influence are you in that God might be calling you to engage with as his representative. What, where are your spheres? We all have different places that we are, that we have people around us. And that's work, that's school, it can be our neighbors, it could be, you know, if we go to the same Starbucks every single day at the same time and people know our names, you know, it's like the people that, the barista's there. So what spheres are you in that God might be calling you to engage with as his ambassador or representative? Paul engaged in the secular world. The second thing is Paul preached a beautiful gospel. In 2001, uh, in a 2001 issue of Cutting Edge magazine, Dallas Willard, who was the chair of philosophy at USC until, until he passed a few years back, wrote a fascinating article entitled Rethinking Evangelism. And specifically talking about presenting the gospel, he said, we have to present our message as something that deals with the natural aspirations of the human heart. What Jesus announced attracted people from every level. And the real question is, how do you do evangelism? My short answer, Dallas Willard said, is you ravish people with the blessings of the kingdom. You make them hungry for it. That's why words are so important. We must be wordsmiths of the gospel. Use words to ravish people with the beauty of the kingdom. It's the beauty of the kingdom that Jesus said was causing people to climb over each other to get in. And so Dallas Willard, what he is saying is that we need to be wordsmiths 
of the gospel, to be able to, to communicate the beauty, the incredible beauty of Jesus. I mean, it, when you think about how Jesus did it, when you read his gospels, John is a great example, right? So uh, when you think about how Jesus was able to take normal situations and to use his words to dramatically illustrate the kingdom of God and why he's God. I mean, we think about, it's like John four, he's literally at a well where you get water. And so what does he say? He says, I am the living water, right? A little later, he's by food. And so he says, I am the bread of life, right? A couple of chapters later, he's, he's in front of this festival of lights and he's in the temple and the court of women. And there's these huge candelabras with blazing light at night. And what does he say? He says, I am the light of the world. He takes normal everyday situations and he is able to use his word. I mean, he's God, right? But he's able to use his words to be able to communicate why he is everything. He was a wordsmith of the gospel that spoke to people where they were at. And if you ever look at it, it's, it's not the, uh, you, you know, when you think about Jesus, it is uh, the sinner's the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the people that, that were on the outside of Jewish community. It was those people that could not get enough of him. Why? Because he preached a gospel that acknowledged their profound need for a savior. And he called them into a relationship with him. So in the book of Acts, you know, there's really no standard or stock gospel presentation. It's just uh, individuals in different scenarios with different people by the Holy Spirit's prompting that these men were able to communicate a beautiful gospel. And in our case, in this particular setting, Paul is tailoring and being a wordsmith, he's tailoring the gospel to the Stoic Epicurean Greek philosophy mindset. And so he's, in my mind, redefining God for them, right? He's redefining God for them and he's wordsmithing the beauty of the gospel. And so we can pick up right here in verse 23. Paul says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Paul right here for the Stoic and Epicurean mindsets is redefining God. And the way he's redefining God in this is that he is defining God as a transcendent and God and beyond human comprehension. A student asked me this last week, uh, she said, you know, sometimes when I read some of the stories in the Bible, I struggle with them because it really honestly seems like the Bible is fiction. It's not real, it's made up. It's almost like a fairy tale. And she referenced certain stories like Noah's Ark or, um, you know, parting the Red Sea or some of these other wild and crazy uh, supernatural events in the Bible, right? Uh, and so she was asking me like, so, so, so what do I do? <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay. Well, um, the first thing I thought about is really it depends on who do you think God is? 
And the way that Paul is talking about it here is that he's describing God as the infinite creator, that he's infinite in power, he's infinite in knowledge, he's infinite in time, meaning he's not bound by our our human finite constructs of time. He's outside of that, he created it. That every single thing you're learning, if you're a you know, UCSD student here, every single thing you're learning in your physics classes about the laws and the rules of how the world works, God created that and therefore is outside of it. He can literally do anything. And that's what he's saying here. He says, God does not live in temples made by man or served by human hands. He's way beyond that. Not only that, but he made all humans and he directs their ways. And so we responded to the student and responded to us and responded to the Stoics and the Epicureans. It's God is transcendent. He is beyond human comprehension. In many ways, he can do anything. <laughs> if he wanted to make two of every animal from all over the world to all of a sudden come to one place for this massive boat that was built over hundreds of years happen, he could. And so who you think God is matters. And then he continues to, to, to wordsmith the gospel and redefine who God is for the Stoics and Epicurean philosophers of the Areopagus. Verse 27, he says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that a divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And Paul is such a boss because you can tell that he he knows, he engages in the society and the culture, but he also knows a thing or two. He quotes two of the uh, Greco-Roman philosophers here in his presentation. He just pulls out these quotes and is able to use these quotes to talk about God. So Paul is pretty amazing. The second way though that he builds on the gospel and redefines God is that he is transcendent and beyond human comprehension, but this transcendent God made himself known and is personal. I mean, this to me is the craziness of the Bible is that the God of the universe made himself known. The unknowable God made himself known to his creation. We see this uh, perhaps the most uh, just stark, beautiful way in the book of John, again. Uh, The Stoics uh, believed and their God was logic. Their, their, Their divine way of life, their divine knowledge was called logos. The Greek word logos, which means ultimate knowledge. In John, John 1, 1, he starts the book off and he says, in the beginning was the logos, the ultimate divine knowledge and way of life that the Stoics devoted their entire lives to learning about and, and reading about. In the beginning was the Lagos and the Lagos was with God and the Lagos was God. So a Stoic philosopher could have read that and been like, okay, yeah, I get that. Yeah, okay. The knowledge was before and is and was God. Okay, good. 
But then John introduces something in verse 14 that flips the world upside down. And he says, and the logos became flesh and dwelled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace. And what Paul's trying to do here is he's trying to say that God is much larger than any human construct you have in your minds, elite philosophers and religious people of the time. God blows you out of the water. But in his grace, he has made himself known to us. And he continues in verse 30. He says, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so Paul, again, is saying that this knowable God, he's redefining God, he's introducing God to these people, and he's saying this unknowable God made himself known, and he made himself known in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, turn to Jesus and admit your need of a savior. Repent of your sin. And we know and we can have faith and know that Jesus is God because he has the authority or the authority to believe in him because he was raised from the dead. That is the stamp of authority saying that Jesus is God. And the gospel, that's what it is. That's what Paul's communicating here to the, the intellectual elite of the Roman Empire. He's saying that the gospel is that a transcendent, infinite God would create each one of us with purpose, a purpose to be known and loved and be in perfect communion with him. And that that God would care enough about our circumstances to become like us, Jesus, to live among us, to teach us what it means to walk with God, to live a perfect life. He suffered and died on a cross to pay for our sins. And finally, to be raised to life, victoriously conquering sin and death. And all we have to do is to admit our shortcomings and run to him and ask him to transform our hearts. As Paul's doing this, he's addressing the idols that the Stoic and Epicureans and the intellectually elite had at the time. And he's saying, idols deprive us of joy. Idols are created things. They're literally, uh, you know, he's, he's even mocking them in some ways. He's saying that the things you worship are stone. <laughs> the things you worship are wood, <laughs> you know. And he's saying, but these things deprive us of joy. They lead to further depression, anxiety, loss, bondage. That is what idols do. The gospel frees us of guilt and shame. The gospel gives us a new identity as a beloved son and daughter of God. The gospel ultimately brings the hope, life, joy, and peace that we all desperately crave, right? And I think Paul, Paul's challenge to the Greeks here is the same challenge that we need when we talk to people that we are engaging with is we want to ask them, will you respond to the good news of the gospel and allow Jesus to transform you from the inside out? 
There's so much, so many, so many issues, so much baggage, so much hurt, so much pain. But will you take a step of faith and cast your fears and your anxieties on Jesus and receive the peace and confidence that comes in a relationship with Jesus? Wordsmiths of the gospel is really just that is why is Jesus so much more beautiful than anything that this entire earth or world has ever created or manufactured and inviting them into a relationship with him. Paul preaches a beautiful gospel. And finally, last point is Paul leaves the results to God. This is in verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. And really, so this is Paul, right? This is the guy that can walk up into the intellectually elite of the world and start even using their own writings and their own philosophical writers as like a, a proof, right, in his presentation. So he, he's awesome. He's so cool, right? But even still, Three things happened. And even still, when we engage our world and when we preach a beautiful gospel to people, three things are still probably, three possibilities will probably happen. The first is that some mocked him. They heard of the resurrection and they were like, nah, <laughs> you're crazy. I have no framework. I have no way of thinking about someone raising from the dead. The second option where some were curious, right? It says that uh, they were like, okay, we will hear you again about this. <laughs> you know, let's, let's keep talking. I'm curious. That's interesting what you said. I want to hear more about it, right? And finally, some believed. And one of the coolest things about this is that it says Dionysus the Areopagite. The Areopagite means that person was on that council that was the, the gatekeepers for, for what the, uh, the Greco-Romans at the time incorporated into their philosophies and their religious mindsets. So this is one of those people became a Christian that day. So a couple people believed. And so the main theme, like I was talking about earlier of the book of Acts is that the, the empowerment and the work of the Holy Spirit through the church in the world is the main thrust. The Holy Spirit is the principal actor in the church today. It says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to the world. And so really, when we're engaging in the world and we're preaching a beautiful gospel to people, we literally have no control over whether someone believes in God or not. Zero. So if we have that, put that pressure on us, then we're, it's, it's not good pressure. We have no control. All we can do is prayerfully take a step of faith to engage in the secular world and preach a beautiful gospel and ultimately leave the results to God. God is gonna take care of it. God is wooing people to himself even as we speak. And in Luke, it talked about this idea as, as they were going into the city, the triumphal entry that Jesus was going to Jerusalem, the, the Pharisees were saying, tell these people to stop. They're worshiping you as God. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, even if they weren't even here, the rocks would cry out that I am God. So guys, we get this awesome opportunity to be a part of the work of God, to engage our world, preach a beautiful gospel. 
and ultimately watch the Holy Spirit do incredible things. And I think the application for us today is the same application that Luke, the author of Acts, had for those Christians at that time. This is about 30 to 40 years after Jesus died. The church was spread out all over the Roman world. They were the absolute religious minority of that time. They were being persecuted from the Jews and the Romans. They needed some encouragement. And to read about how this outsider like Paul was able to go toe to toe with the culturally elite and actually win some of them over and still live to tell about the story was of amazing encouragement to them. That it said, okay, what I believe in is true and it matters that even he could do that. I think that's part of the reason why Luke wrote this or put this story in his account of Acts. So 2,000 years later, I believe that the application is the same for us as the church. Is that you and we are most likely the spiritual minority in every single sphere that we're in. I mean, who wants to be labeled that Christian, right? (laughs) And so there are many reasons why we want to be wise in how we engage with our spheres of influence. But really, the message is the same. The Holy Spirit is at work and he is empowering you to be his witnesses and his ambassadors to share and reflect the love of God to the spheres that you're in. And so as we end, I just want you to think about whatever God put on your heart regarding your spheres of influence, whether it was a person, whether it was thinking about, dang, I need to identify my spheres of influence, whether it was identifying, I honestly, I have no idea how to even begin to preach a beautiful gospel. <laughs> I want you to identify whatever was prompted in your heart this morning. I want you to write it down and do me a favor, talk to someone that you trust and care about, about what you wrote down and why. And you know, Grace City, you have a staff of incredible people that this is what they want to do, is to help you grow in your relationship with God and to help you become the best witness for God in your communities. And so if you have any questions about what to do or how to do and all that stuff, please talk to them. Please come talk to me afterward. But the whole point is for us to engage in our world preach a beautiful gospel and lead the results to God. We are all normal and flawed, but thank God that he's empowered us through his Holy Spirit to be his witnesses to our friends, our families, our schools, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, the city. So let me go ahead and pray real quick and end our time. God, we are again, just so humbled by your presence. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible example of Paul going to toe-to-toe with the religious and philosophical and intellectually elite. Thank you that you were able to use him to proclaim your gospel. But Lord, thank you that 2,000 years later, we recognize and know that the same Holy Spirit that was in Paul is in us and that you've empowered us and entrusted us with this beautiful message of the gospel that brings transformation to lives, transformation to communities, transformation to families. And God, we just pray that you would move before us and already be preparing people and places and things in order for us to be able to go 
and just engage and to preach a beautiful gospel and to leave the results to you. God, we pray blessings over this church and we pray blessings over this church's mission and desire and hope to reach the communities of San Diego. And we just pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.